Thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of the Infertility and Me podcast. I am your host, Monique, and I appreciate you for tuning in and for returning if you're a returning listener. I thank you again for your support these last six to seven weeks. Today is January the 7th, and I have with me Miss Kendall. She is a licensed professional counselor, and she is a mental health counselor and holds a professional membership with Resolve, the National Infertility Association, and the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. Kendall specializes in supporting individuals who experience challenges with fertility using a compassionate approach. She provides comfort and openness for people to share various thoughts and emotions that occur during their own reproductive journeys. Kendall's passion to advocate for others during their fertility journey stems from her own experience as someone who has struggled with fertility challenges since early adolescence. Both personally and professionally, Kendall has gained understanding on the need for emotional safe spaces for people to connect and seek comfort when trying to understand and process all that can occur when faced with limitations around the ability to conceive. And Kendall is going to share with us today her journey and a little bit more about what she does as a counselor. I will have all of her information in the show notes, her Instagram, as well as her website. As always, the infertility and me information will also be in the show notes for the website as well as the Instagram account that I have for you guys to connect with me and to get to know me a little bit better and for your daily dose of inspiration and what I like to call infertile thoughts. Also on my website, I have a blog set up with show notes for each episode as well as a category called infertile thoughts which is sometimes um, sometimes I do impromptu blog posts and sometimes I will post uh, ideas and thoughts surrounding infertility from my Instagram account. So you guys can check out the website and look at that information as well as um, read the about section and get to know me a little bit better if you're new to the podcast. And again, I thank you guys for tuning in. We are now a thousand plus downloads in six weeks. And today is what, January 7th? Yes. So it's been about six and a half weeks since I launched the podcast. So I appreciate you guys for sharing, giving your feedback. And I ask that you would just subscribe and also connect with me on Instagram. And, and so that we can get to know each other a little bit better. If you'd like to come on as a guest and share your journey and connect and heal with me on the podcast, I'd be more than happy to have you. So reach out to me through the website, um, through email, and also on Instagram. You can connect with me there, and we're going to get right into the episode. Thank you, guys. Yes. So, hi, my name is Kendall Bassar. I'm a licensed mental health counselor who practices in the state of New York. I have been practicing for about five years, but actually have had my license as a mental health counselor for, um, since February, so almost a year. Um, I was practicing under a permit. Um, I specialize in trauma, um, particularly with um, grief and loss, PTSD, infertility. Um, I graduated from North Carolina A&T um, with my bachelor's in psychology, and then I actually went to Columbia University, where I got a master's of arts and a master's of education in psychological counseling. I then really actually migrated to working with women in prison system upstate in New York. So I worked at a minimum and a maximum security prison, um, helping women with women's health advocating for them to get their needs met um, through the medical staff, um, and then also just educating them about their health um, and their reproductive rights, um, just really understanding how they can have still quality care while being incarcerated. I then worked in a domestic violence shelter for three years, um, where I worked with children from infants to five and dealing with mothers who were dealing with trauma around, you know, having children after being exposed to violence or abuse, um, kind of helping them understand the impact of trauma in the wound and, and post that. Um, and then also working with the children um, through play therapy. And then also working with adolescents who experienced some type of trauma. I also then worked with women and men who experienced domestic violence. 
And then I started working in a private practice um, under my permit and working specifically with adults, um, helping them through life stages of adjustments, anxiety, depression, again, post-traumatic stress disorder, women who were facing infertility. Um, and then that also then led me to where I am currently at a private practice again, where I specialize in infertility and women's health. Um, and then that led me to then being a member with Resolve and um, really focusing and trying to help women and men or anyone who is dealing with any type of reproductive um, challenges and then coming to an understanding and having a safe space to connect to their own individual journey. Wow, wow. Well, congratulations on all of your accomplishments, work and um, your education. That's, that's amazing. And it's wonderful to hear that you are, um, you know, so well uh, heard, well, not really rehearsed, but so well educated in your specialty. And so people can feel confident in your ability to help them um, and go beyond just being a coach or a mentor. So that's great. And I just wanted to ask, as well, Kendall, so that everybody can get to know you a little bit better. What has been your experiences personally with fertility or infertility? Yes, and so it's interesting where I feel God and life lead you. Mm -hmm. So I knew since 15 that I wanted to be a therapist. There was no doubt in my mind that therapy was my niche, whether it was just family dynamics or the environment in which I grew up with and having friends that would go through things or my own personal losses that I experienced from a very early age. I knew also like I came from a house of educators. My dad is from the South mm -hmm. and my mom is a Washingtonian born and raised in DC. And so my dad's family, a lot of people are nurses um, and teachers. And so I first thought I was going to be an early childhood educator and I really have always had this maternal energy and love children and it wasn't until I took a class um, and I took an early childhood class in high school that I realized I wanted to what I thought be a child psychologist so again I've always had this strong connection to children and um, I was the first girl in 15 years or I think 15 or 17 years on my dad's side of the family so I had a lot of older cousins who by the time I was starting to develop into my adolescence had kids and so I would see my cousins at the age of like 24 getting married and having children and it always resonated to me so I always knew I wanted to be a mom I wanted to have children and then I wanted to potentially work with children. So when I actually was in college at the age of 19, mm -hmm. I had my first ovarian cyst. And it was a, such a powerful experience because at that time I had no clue what a cyst was. Mm -hmm. And I think when I think about just like how we as women are educated about our reproductive like organs, it's more about like sex. And mm -hmm. I feel it's more mm -hmm. about like us being able to have children, the things that can prevent us from having children to a degree as far as like STDs or HIV, but they don't really tell us about the things and the really educate, or for me personally, I don't feel I was educated enough to know the functionality of my reproductive organs. Mm. And so when I was 19 years old, I remember actually being in my dorm and getting very sick. And I remember throwing up and having like kind of more of a difficulty when it came to using a bowel movement. And I say these things not to be crass or to get too personal, but I say these things to educate women on certain signs of what happens to your body when there could be something that is wrong. And so I remember actually calling my mom and telling her like something doesn't feel right. And so she was like, well, maybe you have a UTI. And again, I wasn't familiar with that terminology. And she explained to me that that was probably like a urinary tract infection. And so then eventually I was like, okay, well, let me see, like, maybe I should go, you know, go to get some over-the-counter stuff to treat something. Because I think, again, I didn't have the education and the resources to really know that I should go seek help. And I think a lot of times as a woman of color, I don't really always feel comfortable Mm -hmm. going to certain places and especially being a 19 year old I was like okay it's just something I can go to the store and like try to deal with myself and so then there was one night where I was talking to one of my best friends and he was actually a male and I told him something felt really painful and then when I placed my hand over my abdomen I noticed that I saw or felt something and so then we rushed to the emergency room and I went to the emergency room and this part was actually very very interesting because I actually went to the emergency room. I got cultures done. 
they came out negative, actually had a boyfriend at the time, and he was actually out of town when it had happened. They did a pelvic exam. And again, there was nothing that showed any concerns, but they said to me, oh, well, it looks like you may have had like an STD that you didn't treat. And now you have pelvic inflammatory disease and you may not be able to have children. Mm -hmm. And I remember being so devastated by this because I didn't know what any of that meant. And even though the cultures were negative, I personally feel because I was a woman of color that they had just dismissed me and had told me, oh, well, you have, you know, this probably had an STD and now this is what led to that. So basically making it seem like I was inadequate of caring for myself. And this is kind of what led to then the potential of infertility. So I remember the next day I came back to my dorm and my brother who was an hour away in school, who's two years older than me, came to visit me. I remember giving him my discharge paperwork and I was devastated. And I was like, I can't have children. This is what they said. And I remember him saying to me, Kennel, you don't have this. And I was like, no, this is what they told me. He's like, I don't believe this. You don't have this. So we went to a movie to kind of like cheer me up. And then by the time we ended up going and leaving the movie, I was vomiting profusely. I had had popcorn, love popcorn, and I was just vomiting profusely. So he called my parents and he was like, something's really, really wrong with her. And so after that, he took me back to the same hospital and the same emergency room doctor kind of touched me and he was like, oh, this is a lot more tender. Let's see if she has appendicitis. And so a lot of times um, when women have ovarian cysts that rupture, it kind of is similar to the symptoms of appendicitis because your abdomen, mm-hmm. there's usually fluid in your abdomen. There's things that can happen. You're probably usually going to projectile vomit, not always, but there's things that are indicators of something obviously in the abdominal area that's causing a distress. So then after they realized that I didn't have appendicitis, they finally did an ultrasound, which again, I say all of this to say that an ultrasound should have been done the first time. But again, there was that assumption of me that I think prevented them from really actually tending to me in the way that they needed to and treating me in a way that would have been effective the first time. And so as I came back, they did an ultrasound and they saw that I had a hemorrhagic cyst. And so my body specifically produces hemorrhagic cysts, which are cysts that have blood filled inside of them. And depending on how big they get or if they burst, they can rupture. And that's exactly what happened. And so my cysts would grow to be about four to six centimeters. Mm. And when they grow, if they didn't have room, they would rupture. And so I started to develop this um, from 19 and experienced it all the way up until currently at the age of 32, going on 33. Wow. Wow. That's a lot, Kendall. That is mm-hmm. And a four to six centimeter cyst is huge. And yes. that small space of a reproductive, of a woman's reproductive um, system. I know that much, you know, medically to know that there's, you know, it's, it's nowhere near as large in there as it looks in the pictures. That's wow. 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 What a journey. What a journey. Mm -hmm. And then to be dismissed like that by the first clinic that you went to see and they, 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 they diagnosed you with um, pelvic inflammatory disease, right? Yes. They assumed that it was because of a former STD of some sort. Yes. Yeah. And I really like the, um, the statement that you made also previously about the school system not delving deep enough into um, reproductive health for male and female and educating us enough mm-hmm. as teenagers to really know what it really is. It's a lot to cover, but it can be done, I think. And, Absolutely. And, and, I, and I, that's, that's great that um, people like yourself have educated themselves through college and such to be able to explain these things to adults because nobody's ever been able to explain it to them. And even their Absolutely. own doctors are not doing it. No. And, and that, I think that's really a disservice to the education system and as well as doctors out here treating people. And I know that they're busy, you know, they get overwhelmed, but still, you know, they, they could have definitely yes. done more testing and, and, and gotten you the help that you needed um, long before you had got rushed to the, to the hospital. Wow. And so how, how are you treated now? Yes. And so that I feel like was the start of a very long journey, which has led me to really being passionate about 
reproductive health and advocacy, and also emotional safety and vulnerability. Because I think for me personally, I did not feel that a lot throughout my journey. So after I had um, that experience at 19, I then was in and out of hospitals for a long time. I was blessed in a way to have a really good doctor um, who actually was the doctor that delivered me. And um, I would literally go back home, even though I was in the state of North Carolina for undergrad, I grew up in Maryland. And so after this has happened, I would go home to see him because he was the person that I felt safe with. And, you know, he was really good, but he wasn't where I lived. And so he had first recommended for me to be on birth control. And I was very hesitant about it, but then decided to do it because I couldn't keep every month getting sick and it just wasn't a functional lifestyle to live. And so I was on birth control and for a while it was effective and it worked. And then we were putting me on higher dosage because birth control itself can also take, depending on who you are and like, and what, you know, you're already hormones are on top of additional ones that they're giving you, it took a while to find the right fit. And so it seemed like for a while we were on the right track. And then my body was just still very powerful. And my um, ovaries were like, I'm still going to do what I'm going to do. And so there were times where I was still getting very sick and we were having cycles. And then there was a time where we were like, okay, let's see. So we were upping a dose and there was a particular dose that I'm not sure if it was the dose and just the way it responded to my body, but I was actually creating, I feel like, more cyst. And then it got Mm. to the point where I had, after I graduated, I'm from graduate school, so I was 24 at the time, had a really huge cyst that I went actually to um, Maryland to check out. And then there was the hurricane, I think, Irene. So when I went to the hospital, they lost my actual um, ultrasound because when I went to the hospital, the systems were cutting out due to the hurricane. So I came New York. And then they also like, um, kept sending me home. And so eventually I kept consulting with my doctor from Maryland and we agreed that we were going to do a surgery to remove the cyst because at this point the cyst was pretty big, but my ovary itself was like Mm -hmm. six centimeters. So my ovary also was becoming concerning. And so I kept going back into a particular hospital here in New York. And there was again, another doctor who kept telling me that they didn't think it was operable. Um, Mm -hmm. So my parents came from Maryland, they brought me home and my doctor canceled his vacation trip. He did a surgery on a day that he didn't even do surgeries to remove what we thought was going to be the cyst. But by the time he got in to actually do it, my ovary had already had what we call an ovarian torsion. So there were two blood clot cysts that were pretty big in size. And so they had already compromised my ovary. So by the time that he was able to get to the ovary, it had already lost its oxygen. So he had to remove it. So the the oxygen, it just started to die, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so when that happened, that was... um, a very hard thing for me because I went into a surgery expecting one thing and woke up to something completely different. And so there was a lot of trauma that I experienced, a lot of PTSD, a lot of anxiety. And mm-hmm. I think it made a lot of um, where I am now in the spaces that I now understand that I try to hold for people in a professional space. And so although I don't go into my counseling sessions with women who have infertility and always put my experience onto them. Mm -hmm. I think that I just kind of take elements of what I think are common themes that women feel when we go through these things, especially um, women of color. I definitely felt sometimes silenced when I was going to the doctor, particularly and telling her that something was wrong and she kept sending me home. And then actually, ironically, a year later, I had a friend who got pregnant and was going to deliver her baby and had one of me and my friends come to pray over her. And as um, she was getting checked, the doctor who had been working on me was coming to check her. And before she left the room, she's like, you look familiar. And she's like, didn't you have a cyst? And she asked me kind of what happened. And I told her I lost the ovary and she couldn't even look at me Mm. after that. And she kind of like walked out the room. And so it was one of those like things where I feel like it came to this full circle of God mm-hmm. telling me, you know, I didn't lose anything. It was more of gaining something. And what I gained from that is sometimes when you go through something and you're trying to communicate it to people and they're kind of focused on what they know versus what 
you are actually feeling mm-hmm. and experiencing, mm-hmm. it can be very challenging. And so a lot of elements that I think that come from dealing with infertility can be feelings of fear, um, yes. feelings of anxiety, feelings of isolation, feelings of frustration, sometimes being angry. Like I was angry at that particular doctor after that happened. And I was angry at myself for not feeling like maybe I could have done enough guilt that can happen, you yes. know, embarrassment and shame, feelings of inadequacy that I felt for many years after only having one ovary, um, pressure and, and feeling overwhelmed about being responsible for myself and, um, kind of sometimes feeling a little bit maybe like anal and and rigid and having more of this fear of wanting to be in control of things because I didn't feel in control so like having a mistrust about vulnerability or of others and life and so there were so many things that I navigated and so in that space I kind of look at those things to figure out how can I help other women who may or may not be feeling this it doesn't mean our stories are similar but it could be a space that I can hold and so that they know that they're are spaces to go to because for a long time that was also hard for me to even figure out what avenues I used while dealing with the impact of all the things that my body was communicating to me. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely resonate with that. Our stories are very, you know, completely different, but at the end of the day, the emotions that you go through when there is a reproductive medical condition that you that that your body is putting you through or whether it's hormonal like myself with hypothyroid disease and you know just so many other factors ovarian reserve failure for for other women and low sperm cat for men you know even though our stories are so very different we still feel connected because we had this struggle with the one thing in the one place in the one area of our, our bodies that we're taught that this is what it's going to be like you said in the beginning you know, you go to school, they tell you, woman, this is what you do. This is how your body creates a baby. You got to go through all the menses. You got to go through all these parts of your cycle. And then all you got to do is just eat right, do this, and your sperm will grow healthy. And, you know, all these different avenues for telling exactly. us that this is what our body, it's so ingrained in the school system here in the U.S. that this yeah. is what your body is supposed to do. This is mm-hmm. what's going to happen. And this is the way it's going to be. But what happens Absolutely. when it doesn't come out that way? Exactly. And I definitely did not feel prepared. And I think that lack of being prepared, because like you said, in life, you are trained to be prepared for so many things. You're, and I can say I had parents that, you know, had the resources to help me feel prepared in certain ways. You know, I came from a middle-class home. I, you know, was able to go to school and then I was able to further for myself personally, my education. And there was all these things that I felt like were instilled for me to be prepared for but nothing I felt could prepare me for the thing that I probably wanted the most, which is to have a child and to be a mom. And it's not saying that I can't, but I still am a little uncertain of what that will look like based on one, I haven't actually um, been in the space where I'm fully trying for that yet, but Mm -hmm. two, also not really knowing with the one over ovary the capability that it has being that I have a low ovarian reserve there's so many things again that you're not educated on no you don't understand any of this until it happens and I think then when it happens you're dealing with the pain of it the actual having to be proactive around it um, going to doctor's appointments Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. having consultations with people having to you know try not to freak yourself out on google after you're trying to research things and really gain a sense of understanding trying to educate your friends while you're educating yourself your partners or your family members or maybe at times not wanting to do that and still really not really knowing what to do for yourself and um, really having to continue to sometimes wait on other people or other opportunities, especially if you're trying to conceive and you have to wait on whether you can get benefits or if you can have enough money um, to freeze your eggs or to do an IVF cycle or an IUI or whatever it looks like, you know, whatever money is invested to if you're willing to adopt and having to make sure all of those things can align and be sustainable and substantial. There's so many things that can come into this space. But I think even just being in this space can be enough once you're once you're there. Yeah. And you know what? It takes a lot of surrendering of, mm-hmm. like you said, control. It takes yes. a lot of surrendering to the idea uh, of the picture that we thought we had in our head about how we would conceive and have children. Yes. 
And it takes a lot of surrendering to the process in general, because I felt like for myself, and I don't know if this is how you felt thus far, but when I got my first initial diagnosis, which they told me was a block tube in 2012, Mm -hmm. I did not surrender. And I did not want to surrender because Mm -hmm. so much of my life I was able to control. I could, I, you know, I, my husband and I, we chose each other. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I chose my career. I chose to Mm -hmm. work alongside my husband and his businesses, you know? So I chose all of these different things for my life and I had control over it as much as I, you know, humanly possible. But then this one thing that I thought I was going to be able to control because one, I had been on birth control for a Mm -hmm. period of time. And then I said, okay, when I'm ready to have kids, when my husband and I are ready to have kids, I'm going to get off the birth control. And when I met him, I had gotten off the birth control. And then we got married two, two years later. And then after what, two, or two years of marriage, two and a half years of marriage, we decided we were ready to have kids and we were in a good place financially and, and stable and everything. Right. So I was able to control all of those aspects of my life up until that point of the diagnosis originally being a right tubal blockage. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when I stopped taking birth control, you know, a couple of years before that, I was like, oh, we're good. You know, it's going to happen. You know, when, 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 when God says it's going to happen, when the creator says it's going to happen and then to get the diagnosis like that, all the control that you thought you had in life goes out of the freaking window. And I, and I think that was one of the greatest lessons that I learned. And a lot of people learn when they're going through infertility, you know, is how, is how do you surrender to the process and just let it be what it is and get through it the way, the best way that you can, you know what I mean? So. Absolutely. Absolutely. My surrender story, like you said, was one in particular, and I share this um, a lot, is it wasn't when, you know, I was 19. It wasn't when I lost my ovary. It was actually the year after that. And like you said, so after I lost my ovary, I then was um, on Lupron, Mm -hmm. which is um, a drug that they use for men who have prostate cancer, women who deal with endometriosis, or if they're trying to do some type of hormonal suppression. Right. And so it is not the best drug and it put my body through the ringer and I was on it for seven months. And while on it, I still wasn't surrendering. I was like, you know, it was literally like my other ovary started overworking yeah. itself. It was, it took time for my body to adjust to not having that other ovary. And so it was just having the one. And I remember specifically just like, okay, do whatever you have to do. At this point, I almost felt like there was such a disconnect for me and my body. And there was still so much anger that it was like, whatever you had to do so that I'm not in pain, yeah. just do it. And I remember specifically, it was May of 2012. And I was actually babysitting for a family and I wasn't feeling well. And I called one of my best friends and I was like, I feel like I need to go to the hospital. And she was Mm -hmm. like, so go. And I was like, but I'm scared because I feel like it's not going to be something that I want it to be. And so sure enough, I ended up, you know, after babysitting, I had a roommate. I went home, told her I need to go to the hospital. She came with me, but then she had to study for finals. She was still in school. I had finished school at that point. So I was like, you go home. So by five o'clock, I'm in the hospital and I haven't been tended to because it's an emergency room and there are people that actually were in critical condition. So I remember like at five o'clock in the morning, dressing myself up, literally putting my clothes back on, going to the receptionist and being like, so I want to discharge myself. Mm-hmm. And she was like, sweetie, she looks at my record. She's like, you cannot discharge yourself given your history. And I was like, well, I just, I'm ready to just like go. So she's like, just hang out. So I remember going back into the room and I remember a doctor coming in. And the question that she asked me was, so how many miscarriages and abortions have you already had? And I remember feeling so frustrated and angry. And I think as a woman of color, I perceived that as her having this like perception. And I remember, again, like ready to hop off the bed and leave. She starts to do the exams. She gets the ultrasound and I'm in so much pain. And so she's asking me why I'm crying. And I'm literally like, something doesn't feel right. So then around eight o'clock that morning, a whole team of women come in and they introduce themselves as an OBGYN team. So I'm like, okay, something really doesn't feel good. And so they explained to me that the quality of that ultrasound machine wasn't the best. So they wanted to take me upstairs to use another one that that would be there around like 8 a.m. So we go upstairs, get the ultrasound done. And as I'm waiting, I like waiting and waiting. And then I see this doctor come with her like surgical, you know, mask. And they're explaining to me that they did not see good blood flow to my other ovary and that they Mm -hmm. thought that they were actually going to probably have to remove it. 
And in that moment, all I could have was this encompassed amount of fear. And I literally was like, I didn't have my phone. I didn't have anything on me because it was downstairs in the room where I was. Um, so I asked them if I could use their phone. And I remember calling my mom and she was at work and I was like, you need to listen to me. I'm about to go into surgery. They're going to take my ovary. And I remember as they were like willing me down to prep me, I felt lifeless. And I remember actually using social media. And the first thing I thought was, okay, I'm going to post the status and let people know what's happening to me. Because at this point, mentally and emotionally, I don't know how I'm going to like be after this. So I'm going to need people wow. to pray for me. I'm going to need to figure out. So my face starts kicking in already. And I'm like, all right, God, like you literally have to do this because I have nothing left. And at this point, I'm like 26 years old or 25, maybe going on 26. And I'm like, I just... I can't imagine that I will really never be able to have like kids naturally. And like, why is this happening to me? And I literally felt like I physically was going to fall over in the wheelchair. And then they ended up putting me on a bed. Mm -hmm. And then it was when I saw the anesthesiologist and she was like, all right, you know, she was prepping me. And I literally said, you know what? This is a situation where I literally cannot walk and get up and leave. Like they're literally going to operate on me. And I literally remember closing my eyes and saying, all right, God, it's all of you and none of me. And like, I literally am yeah. like submitting to you in a way I'd never feel like I have ever probably done. And it's this blind faith that I have to have. And I just remember looking at her and then waking up and they told me that I actually still had my ovary, that they just had to scrape some adhesions you know, that were mm -hmm. from the previous surgery that had developed. And I think that that for me is a story that I often use about what it felt like to really be faced with what felt like the scariest possibility and that wow. still not be the possibility. And so I think sometimes it's not to minimize anyone's experiences, but when I hear women that are going through it, there's parts of me that it's like, you know, just hold on and just like, close your eyes and get on that bed and just like yeah. allow yourself to be in the space where it is the scariest thing you have ever felt, but it could not be necessarily the scariest outcome. Or even if it is like knowing that there's so much more that you can gain from it. And I think that that was when that particular experience, when I really understood emotional safety, fear, surrendering, um, hope, and also how all of those things can happen in one setting. And you can have more than one. You can have more than one feeling at the same time. You can yeah. be scared and also hopeful. You can be angry and relieved. There's so many things that can come from an experience and a moment that has such an impact. Mm -mm -mm. That's a powerful story of surrendering to the process and, and surrendering to what your life is as you know it right now as far as um, you know fertility is concerned um wow and you know i think it's very you know when you were speaking about counseling with other women and and men who are going through fertility issues infertility and other types of trauma and you were talking about being able to connect with people even though your stories are very different I sometimes, and I don't know if you feel this way, but I sometimes feel like even though I've been through the process and my situation may not have been as devastating as yours or someone else's, even though I've been through it and I have a lot of love to give to other people, right? Because that's what, mm -hmm. that's what, what we do is all about, right? Yes. So especially you being a counselor and um, it's like you have all this love to give, but sometimes I feel like it's hard to interpret that in a way that's comforting to them so a lot yes. of times I find myself just listening to people mm -hmm. and just um and just reassuring them that although this is what your life is right now it will mm -hmm. get better but it's also okay for you to feel like this and we exactly need to, we need to deal with this and I think that's a great point that I I, I kind of heard you say it within your story without actually yes. saying it is that you know just sitting in it just sit yes. there. And that was very difficult for me in my, in, in, in my go through with infertility because I am not an emotionally uh, driven person. So I, yeah. I'm very analytical by nature and I yeah. know how to separate my feelings from my situation. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I don't wear my heart on a sleeve, so to speak in that way. And so that was very difficult for me and also very empowering after everything was all said and done, because it's allowed me to be able to be vulnerable now with other people about my journey and what I've been through to help encourage. Exactly. And but yes, what I was going to ask you was 
how do you counsel your clients on sitting and, and just being and, and trying to be grounded even though they may be depressed? Yes, I think like what you said, it's like there were literal moments where I personally had to sit like after I had, because um, I have had throughout my journey, three laparoscopies okay. and one laparotomy. So gotcha. three incisions through my belly button, through the microscope to either look at or, you know, to remove a cyst. And then when I lost the ovary, the laparotomy, which was the bikini cut incision that they had to do in my abdomen. And so when that actual, the laparotomy, I literally had to sit on bed rest for two weeks. Like there was nowhere that I could go. There was nothing that I could do Mm -hmm. after that situation where I had that laparoscopy to have the adhesions moved again. I had to rest for a couple of days. I had to like, you know, be still. And so I think that I've also learned how to sit with discomfort in order to support someone else understanding that that is even a possibility. And so I think part of what I do when I work with people that experience infertility is one, I just listen, like you said, and I absorb and I connect to what they're saying, the feelings that I'm hearing, or sometimes the feelings that aren't yet said, um, but you can tell through the experiences maybe present, um, having people really just like kind of, I reaffirm or sometimes I reflect and, um, knowing that validation is really important. And I, sometimes I think that sitting with feelings isn't just to connect to them, but sometimes it can be to acknowledge them mm-hmm. and whether that is to say them out loud or in your head. Um, It can be tending to them, whether that is by listening to a song that you connect to, um, watching a movie, reading a book, um, taking a breath. Those are so many ways that you can tend to an emotion, talking to a friend, talking in the therapy session that is tending to those emotions and that experience. There's other ways that you can sit with your emotions, whether it's just in silence and really not saying anything or doing anything. You can sit with them through crying. You can sit with them through grounding, whether that's through a meditation, an affirmation, whether that's through, again, having breath work, whether that is through just having something that soothes you. A lot of times I tell people whether I know for me personally, I used to always have peppermint tea and honey when my, me and my mom would have to have conversations mm-hmm. or after every single doctor appointment, we'd go to that PF Chang's and we'd get that mm-hmm. junk Chinese mm-hmm. food and <laughs> we'd get a glass of wine, right? And that was still us sitting. We wouldn't talk about the appointment. We would just connect. So sometimes sitting with the emotion can be having a space where someone holds for you. And it doesn't mean that they have to talk about it with you. It could be just that they're acknowledging acknowledging it, that you need something and joining you in that. There's so many ways that we can sit with ourselves and sit in a space. And I think that's what I try to um, offer and highlight in my sessions. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, you made a lot of great points, which I'll add to the show notes so that people can, can really delve in, in, in and sit with the ideas that you've given for sitting in your feelings and just being. And I found that not so much through prayer because Mm -hmm. prayer is more so about making a request known and giving thanks to the creator. But I found with meditation, Mm -hmm. it, it uh, teaches you how to sit and just be And and it's found that level, find that level of groundedness. And it's very important. I think with any traumatic situation, no matter whether it's stillbirth, miscarriage, losing an ovary, uh, having, you know, um, a, a tube removed or anything such like that, or hyster, um, hysterectomy. Um, you know, there's just so much that happens when you get the diagnosis of, okay, let's, we gotta, we gotta redo this thing. We gotta remove this thing, or we gotta fix this thing. And I think a lot of people struggle. And I know I did with getting the diagnosis. And then, like you said, having to deal with all the appointments and the medication that comes with along with that. And yes. And in navigating, so like you're grieving the fact that you have to even go through this. Then you got to deal with all these freaking doctors of visits and appointments. And for us who go through IVF treatment and IUI and such, we, it's a, you know, it's a willing service because we, you know, we offer our body to do that, to have children. But at the same time, it's still very overwhelming 
to have Absolutely. to get the to, because you go into the doctor's office just thinking, oh, maybe we just need an IUI, one of the simplest forms of you know infertility treatment, you know, or or fertility treatment, right? But then you get this whole other medical condition that comes along with it. So I have been telling people um, who come to me, and then I have also been advocating for when you get your diagnosis, maybe just maybe you need to wait before going jumping into treatment. Yes. And just letting that process. So how do you how do you help your clients with their diagnoses in their different traumatic situations that they deal with? And how do you how do you how do you reassure them and how do you help them cope with family members and friends and acquaintances who will ask them a bunch of questions and bombard them with, you know, all kinds of questions and, you know, and everything out of love, of course, but, you know, just the, you know, a lot of that can be overwhelming as well. It's getting bombarded with questions and all these things too. Absolutely. There are times where sometimes I think again, like emotional safety is so important to me personally and professionally. And so there are times where I think also feeling that support, because I think also like, as you're saying too, acknowledging that infertility can feel so isolating and, it may be something that as we're building this community, even me and you being able to speak and share our experiences, I definitely resonate and feel very connected in this podcast and your mission and your purpose. And then also being able to express part of mine here, right? And I think that a lot of times when someone is initially going to see me, they're looking for some type of support because they don't have that yet. Um, or they may not know fully how to, you know, share it, whether all of the spaces that they really want to share with a partner or their friends or their family or what they are feeling after the doctor's appointments. And so I think that having that space where I try to really get them to first understand what supports do they need, kind Mm -hmm. of slowly getting into the feelings and then also looking at the readiness for them to be present. Um, Really noticing if there are times, um, sometimes I have their partners or people that they want to come into a session so that I can also be a space that navigates some things that they're really thinking about. Sometimes it's journaling and having them write the things that they want to say to other people Mm -hmm. um, before they can actually express it. Um, Whether it's suggesting books and having bibliotherapy where there's books that can either really relate to um, fertility um, and different aspects of fertility or sometimes just the theme emotions that come out of it. Um, really also thinking about, again, sometimes I will make playlists with clients of songs that they can use per before an yes. IVF appointment or the songs that they need to listen to when it's not successful or songs that are just all about anger that they need to get out. Um, having spaces where we think about the things that they can use for coping. Something that I'm working on professionally and also something that I do is have a coping toolbox where Mm -hmm. I worked with kids when I worked at the domestic violence shelter. And it was really helpful for the kids, especially from six to 18, to have a little like shoebox that they could use that had ways for them to cope so that as they were transitioning into the shelter and they had so many losses that they were going through. This little box created a sense of safety and had mm. tools in there. So sometimes I will do just like more metaphorical, like coping tools. And then sometimes mm-hmm. I will literally have hands-on things. And so for me and my toolbox, I have, I have journals. Um, I have affirmation cards. I have essential oil of lavender because it suits me. I have, again, like list of songs for playlists that I want to listen to so that I can just tap on them to my phone. I yeah. have, Again, um, things that I may like, if there's books, if the box is big enough, whatever you want to put in that space um, to help you move through it, tea bags, um, all of those things I think can be helpful um, to help people when they're navigating the things that they are dealing with and going through. Um, I usually will have people, you know, process their doctor's appointments and we talk Mm -hmm. about the impact that that had, or if they have questions, making sure that they're able to write them down and, and also feeling like that sometimes I think we can feel like the doctors are always the expert, but we also can be experts of our own bodies to a degree. Um, And so I also want to like advocate for people to not just, go into an appointment and then walk out of it with this heaviness and uncertainty and not ask for clarity. So I think part of what's really important for me in the process is understanding your feelings, connecting to your voice, 
sitting with your emotions, figuring out what you need and the coping that comes with that, building your community and your support systems and what that looks like for an individual and how they navigate that. Awesome tips. Awesome tips. And then also what I'm hearing from you is using tools that you would normally use when you're not necessarily going through something traumatic. So for say, you know, uh, I think a lot of people sometimes forget, you know, that, okay, I love music. So I'm going to mm-hmm. use that as a way to soothe my spirit. Right. And like yes. that journaling, a lot of people do that naturally, but then when they go through something traumatic, because it's like this hustle and bustle, and I always have this image in my head of like a bunch of cartoon characters running around crazy, you know, because that's how yes. you feel after you, you know, you've been through something or you're in the middle of it, you know, and then we forget about, oh, I love music. Oh, I love to sing. Oh, I like to mm-hmm. write poetry. Oh, I like to exactly. take long walks, like just getting back to the basics of soothing ourselves mentally spiritually physically and emotionally you yes. know, a lot of people like to pray a lot of people like to meditate a lot of people like acupuncture but i think yeah. that's important and that's a great point that you make about just you know doing the things that you love and then doing more of that in the middle of your go-through that's exactly awesome tips, awesome tips. Well, Kendra, and also I, giving yeah. yourself compassion because yeah. i think that that's so hard to do and i think the more compassion you give to yourself and the more compassion you give to the process and knowing, okay, there's days I may not want to create, you know, something. There's days where I just am angry. Okay. And so you don't have to change it. Just give yourself compassion towards it. Right. And so I think compassion is also something that I also help people gain an understanding of for themselves individually, what compassion looks like for me in this journey. And what is that going to, how do I use that as a tool to, to get through this and to move through it? Even if it's not getting through, it's moving through, you know, and what that looks like. Yeah, that's a great point. I've been saying a lot. I, I, I think I made a post about it recently about being gentle with yourself. And, yeah. and, and that was a really big lesson for me, too, because I'm so self-critical. Um, and, um, and so when I go through something, I'm like beating myself up. Well, how can I fix it? Or what could I have done differently and things like that? But going through infertility really taught me to just have more compassion for myself. And see, I, I, I feel like for me, it was, it's so easy for me to have compassion and empathy for others and have love for others. It comes naturally to me, but I am so much more hard on myself. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of people will resonate with what you just said about having compassion for self before anybody yeah. else, especially if you're in a relationship going through the journeys. Um, yes. And then there's some people who are doing it single. So it's really even more difficult for them. So exactly. Yeah. That's, and, a, that's a great tip. Yeah. And also it's like the compassion for your body, because I think sometimes we can start to have this sense of panic when our, when our expectations of ourselves shift. And then we have this expectation of what we want our body to still do. And I think for me, it wasn't until I really went into the egg freezing Mm-hmm. um space and I had a very low ovarian reserve in my A count and I remember right before it was time I think to do the first cycle because I did three attempts. I got two eggs from one, none from the second, and then wow. um seven from the third, but only four were mature. So six okay. eggs in total out of three attempts. And I remember when I knew that I was only gonna get maybe three out of the first and I was so sad and disappointed and every you know appointment was just this nerve-wracking like will or won't what will happen and knowing that I had to wait until after it was done to figure out if those were even viable I remember having this moment where I said to my body like I'm not mad at you and I want to listen to you and I want to love you, not what to just love what I'm expecting of you. And this is hard for me and I can tell it's hard for you too. And I want us to be connected because I don't want it to be something where I'm trying to make you do what you can't do. And as much as it is hard for me to even figure out what accepting you looks like, I want to be as open and I need to be be patient with me while I'm being patient with you. And so it's like having that compassion too, not just to your thoughts and to your vision, but to the, your body that you're actually really using while you're going through this. That is excellent. Excellent point. Excellent point. I've never heard anybody describe it like that. And yeah, that's, I don't have anything to add to that because that's, that's an amazing, amazing point. It's just, 
that's part of what we were saying before is being still and not just connecting emotionally, spiritually to ourselves, but the physical connection that we make with our bodies and speaking to our subconscious minds Mm -hmm. about our situation is so important. And I don't say that in a sense that you are trying to, you know, talk your, your way, talk yourself into healing your body. You know, a lot of people practice that, but when there's a medical condition, it's a lot more, you know, complexities to the situation. So it doesn't quite work. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. So I don't want to, I'm not saying in the sense of that, but the sense of just saying to your body, look, like, for instance, I have an affirmation in my journal that I go back to when I have it marked so I can go back to whenever I'm feeling low. And the statements is, I am enough. Yep. You know, or, you know, my body does what I, what it needs to do. And my body takes care of me, you know, things like exactly. that, exactly. loving, 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 loving affirmations for you. Yes. Body. And, and, and those yeah. are acknowledgement, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so like you said, it's not to try to like heal ourselves, but it's actually a part of healing is acknowledging it's, yeah. it's acknowledgement. And so it's acknowledging your body and the state that it's in. And as hard as that can be, Ooh. that can be such a catalyst to the process. Mm-hmm. So difficult to say to your body that's not doing what you want it to do, mm-hmm. and at the time that you wanted to do it, to say, "Look, I love you. You're enough. We're in this together." Exactly. And 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 yeah, that is powerful, powerful stuff right there. That's a whole other podcast episode. So we could <laughs> definitely <you>. do it. <laughs> yes, yes. It's just getting getting to the basics of connecting with our feminine energy for us for us for us women and then for a man to be able to connect with his masculine and feminine energies you know and I think a lot of men struggle with that too I have some male listeners and um you know it's hard for men to sit still and just Mm -hmm. because they feel like oh I'm the man I gotta be doing something I gotta be doing busy this boss this and boss that you know what I mean so yes women find it quite easier to do that but for men, I know it's difficult. And for some women like ourselves, you know, it's difficult too to just tell your body, look, look, it's me and you now, daggone it. So we got to figure out a way <laughs> yeah. to be able to come into oneness with, 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 with each other. And, you know, exactly. in the spiritual community and in, in Christian communities and other type of, you know, religious communities say that we have to be at one. And we always talking about being one with each other and with the yep. creator, but nobody ever talks about being at oneness with yourself in your own yes. freaking body, your own temple. Yep, exactly. And exactly. so I think that that's also something that I add professionally and also something I still try to incorporate, like, you know, personally. And, it, and, I, and you know, it's, I think sometimes people look at it as, okay, what medicines are we taking? And we look at the food we're eating as, you know, how we're helping our body help us. But it's, mm-hmm. no, are we listening to it? Are we actually acknowledging it? Are we actually giving it the compassion it needs while it is trying its best to meet ours? And what do we do when we are disappointed with it, right? And I think those things are just as valuable. Yeah. This has been such an awesome discussion today, Kendall. I thank you for your time because we've been on the phone actually for over an hour, but... (laughs) Yeah. But, oh my God, this is wonderful, wonderful. And everybody, I'm going to leave... Kindle social media and her website uh, so that you guys can connect and heal with her in a more personal way. And you guys will love her Instagram. It's very organized and it's very intentional on what she wants to do to help other people. And I thank you guys for listening. Kendall, um, girl. Yeah, this is it. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and you are too. Thank you so much. Like seriously, it's been such a blessing. Thank you so much.